please take a copy of God's Word and turn to the first book of the Bible. Uh, turn to Genesis chapter 20. We will look at all of chapter 20 and then the first seven verses of chapter 21 this morning. We are continuing our summer Sunday morning sermon series in the book of Genesis, looking at the faith of Abraham. And Pastor Jason will complete the series uh, next Sunday morning, looking at Genesis chapter 22. Before I read God's Word, let's ask for His help in prayer again this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is Your voice that is the voice over the waters, a voice that is above the chaos of this fallen world. You are the God of glory and your voice thunders in the darkness. Your voice is powerful and full of majesty. We ask that you would keep your promise to give your people your spirit, that we may see the majesty of your word, that we may be strengthened by it today, that we would believe it, apply it, that Christ may be glorified in our lives and we would grow in his grace. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes. I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. 
Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed the Bimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at a time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. You need to be thoughtful about how you apply the narrative sections of Scripture in your life. The stories in the Bible are for our instruction that the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Romans 15.4. The narrative portions in the Bible, they are for your instruction. Sometimes an Old Testament or a New Testament story provides an example to follow. Other times, the narrative gives you an example not to imitate. It's an interpretive principle that not all that is described is prescribed. This morning, we are looking at two related stories in the life of Abraham. In the story of Abraham and Abimelech, we see an example of what not to imitate as we seek to walk by faith. In the story of Isaac's birth, we have an example of how to respond to God's faithfulness. So in chapter 20 and then in the first seven verses of 21, I want you to see this. God still cares for you when you fail. That's it. God still cares for us when we fail. That's the one point. Now don't worry, there's subpoints and applications and other things, but it's God still cares for you when you fail him. How does Abraham fail in chapter 20? Well, it's another failed test. Throughout the story of Abraham, his faith is tested. And studying the life of Abraham is so helpful, not just because we're told of his successes, but because we see his failures and we can examine them. And actually, we may learn just as much from his failures as we do his successes. In chapter 20, he fails a testing of his faith again. And there are several failures from it to be observed. The first failure, it's the overarching failure, the one in which all the other failures come from, is a failure to trust God's providential care. A failure to trust God's providential care. And what do I mean by providence? Well, 
God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, powerful, preserving, and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Providence is the way that God in his holiness, wisdom, and according to his power is able to and does preserve and govern all of human history, everything that happens on this planet, everything that has happened, happening right now, and will happen. It is under his providential rule. To not trust in God's providential care as God's people, it is a sign of the remnants of unbelief. It's sinful. As Calvin put it, Abraham sinned through unbelief, for he did not rely on God's providence. Now, what is alarming about failing this test is that it's a a repeat test in so many ways. It's strikingly similar to a test that he failed earlier in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham obeys God, believes God, and goes to Canaan, but when he arrives there, it's not long until a famine comes. And so what does Abraham do? He decides to go to Egypt. And on the way to Egypt, not trusting in God's providential care to protect him, he conceives a plot. And he tells his wife, Sarah, in Genesis 12, verses 11 through 13, let me remind you. I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And so, when they arrive in Egypt, the Egyptians see beautiful Sarah, and they abduct her, and they take her to Pharaoh, and she is put in Pharaoh's harem. And God, not Abraham, has to rescue Sarah. And he does so by afflicting Pharaoh and Pharaoh's house with plagues. And through it all, in God's providence to them, they actually leave Egypt with more than what they arrived with. Now, sojourning near the southern border of Canaan, Abraham is almost in the same scenario. He faces the same test. This time, instead of Pharaoh, it is a Philistine king. And in verse 2, as he did in Egypt, Abraham said, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. In verse 12, Abraham defends his actions, explaining that she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. Which really is not a great defense, seeing that this plot has led to his wife being abducted from him on two different occasions. Here we see a pretty unflattering theme in Abraham's family. His household and his descendants after him in the later chapters of Genesis seem to follow this pattern. They vacillate between trusting God and then concocting schemes to accomplish what God has promised, or at least to attempt to accomplish what God has promised. When she couldn't have a child, remember a couple chapters previous, Sarah schemed for Abraham to have a child through her servant Hagar. Sarah immediately regretted her plan as soon as it worked. His son Isaac will try the same wife-sister plan later in Genesis chapter 26. Isaac's wife, 
Rebekah and his son Jacob will scheme against Isaac and Esau in Genesis 27 and so on. Each occasion, they are seeking to obtain something that God has promised by trying to take matters into their own hands instead of relying on God's providential care. Here in chapter 20, we got to ask, did Abraham really forget how his plan backfired in Egypt? Did Abraham forget how God had to intervene to rescue his wife Sarah? You think he would have learned by now that God's providential care is superior to his schemes. There was a lesson for Abraham to learn back in Egypt about living by faith, but he failed to learn it. And so here we are in chapter 20, and God has to give a dream to a Philistine king. And in verse 3, God tells Abimelech, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is another man's wife. The next morning, immediately, Abimelech, he takes action and he confronts Abraham. Abraham's response demonstrates his reasoning. It demonstrates that after all these years, his thinking hasn't really changed here. In verse 11, what does Abraham say? I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. This is his self-talk. This is what Abraham is telling himself. Before he arrived in Gerar, God had promised him that in one year, he would have a son through Sarah. Instead of repeating to himself, there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife, he should have been reminding himself, God told us that we're going to have a son in a year. No matter what men try to do to me, I will live to see Sarah have a son. God has provided for us before. God has protected us before. He will provide and protect for us again. That should have been his self-talk. God has promised. God will provide. God will protect. God has promised. God will provide. God will protect. Now, I'm not saying that Abraham failed this test of faith because he didn't understand the power of positive thinking. Just thinking happy thoughts won't keep you from harm. It'll just maybe make you a little more optimistic as everything's going down the tube. Abraham's failure was that he was not persuaded by what God had clearly told him. He did not persuade himself that if God makes a promise, God will fulfill his promise. No matter what things look like right now, God in his providence will fulfill what he said he would do. And we must ask ourselves, and I ask you this morning, what are the ideas that are contrary to God's word that you repeat to yourself over and over, and over. Very specifically, what fears do you rehearse to yourself? Is there something that echoes in your mind and heart louder than the truth that God has spoken? There are many credible reasons to live in fear. 
I don't have to rehearse them to you today. In Abraham's days, powerful men killed other men to steal their wives. Remember just a couple hundred years later, in the Bible, King David kills Uriah in order to have Bathsheba. Abraham's fears were based in a fallen world reality, and so are yours. And there's three things you can do with those fears. Three things can happen with your fear. You can be paralyzed by fear. The second is that you can concoct your own scheme to deal or cope with the fear. Or you face the fear and you turn it towards God's word. You face the fear and you trust what God has said. And then you make decisions confident in his providential care for you. How? Well, it begins with turning down the volume on what you've been rehearsing to yourself and then turning up the volume on God's word in your heart and mind. Trusting in the Lord with all your heart means that we don't lean on our own understanding. It means that we do acknowledge Him in everything, in all our ways. Knowing that He cares, knowing that He keeps His promises, and He will make straight your paths. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. From this failure to connect God's promise to God's providential care to fulfill it comes two more failures. That sin breeds two other sins in the passage in chapter 20. We see Abraham fails in his calling. He is sinning against his calling from God. He fails as a prophet. Remember in verse 7, the Lord told Abimelech, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. He is the first man in Scripture called a prophet. Now in Abraham, we don't have the full picture of the office of the prophet. The role of the prophet will really be fleshed out in Moses and eventually fulfilled in Christ. Moses is the archetypal prophet foreshadowing Christ. But Abraham has a prophetic calling here in Genesis. And it comes down to this, is that among all the men on the earth, he was uniquely called to be God's man in the world. Only he in his household were in a gracious covenant with God. The rest of the world remains covenant breakers in Adam. The Lord has entered into a covenant with Abraham so that through him the world would be blessed. All the nations are to be blessed through him. And we see Abraham get a, a grip on this calling a little bit in chapter 18 where there Abraham, the friend of God, also steps into this almost prophetic role as he does his best to intercede for Sodom calling on God's justice and mercy, seeking the blessing of the nations. But here in chapter 20, Abraham is not a blessing to Gerar. His scheme has endangered the people, and it has caused infertility in King Abimelech's house. In the first half of the chapter, Abraham has failed in his calling. And it's not until Abimelech confronts him, and then until Abimelech publicly vindicates Sarah's 
honor and purity, that then Abraham fulfills his calling to be a blessing to the nation of Gerar. In verses 17 and 18, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Despite his failing, God still works through Abraham. Think about how humbling this scenario is for the patriarch. His lack of trust in God is exposed to him by a Philistine king. The Lord used Abimelech to show Abraham Abraham's sin. And yet, even though Abraham's sin brought trouble to Abimelech, God insists that Abraham is still his man in the world. God insists on using Abraham to bless Abimelech, to minister to him. Abraham failed in his calling, but the Lord does not revoke the calling. Abraham is still his covenant man. He remains a prophet, and God answers his intercession on behalf of Abimelech. I think many of you are like me. You can relate to this as a Christian seeking to be a witness for Christ in the world. How many times has your lack of sanctification and godliness jeopardized your witness? Are you like me? Are you ever tempted to think that maybe I should try to get my act together a little more before I dare tell others to repent and turn to Jesus? Here in Abraham, we see a sinner. We also see a saint. And while sinner and saint, he is called to be a witness of the one true God to the world. And we are reminded that we are too simultaneously sinners and saints, progressing in sanctification, and all the while called to be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. We are those who still struggle and fight against sin, and by the Spirit must put to death the deeds of the body. And by the Spirit, we must put off our old selves that belong to the former manner of life. While simultaneously, since we are in Christ, we are those who are raised up with Christ and seated with Him in heavenly places. There's a tension, sinner and saint. And the tension of the already and the not yet doesn't have to be resolved before we are called to go and make disciples. In fact, it is in that tension that we are sent out to make disciples. While many times we still ourselves are stumbling, struggling disciples. In Abraham, we are reminded that the effectiveness of our ministry is ultimately due to God and not to us. Now, of course, this is in no way intended to make light of the holiness required of ministers or not to put a lesser value on godliness and character and choosing leaders in the church. God doesn't value gifting and charisma over character, and we shouldn't either. Now, my point is this, is that if we wait until we arrive at perfect Christ-likeness to be witnesses for Jesus, then we will never be witnesses to Him in this world. Each of us, every Christian, is a jar of clay 
We have treasures in these jars and we need to share that treasure. We have been reconciled to God and God has called us into his ministry of reconciliation in the world. We are his ambassadors for Christ. And by God's design, he is making his appeal through us to sinners. To come to Jesus and be reconciled to God. Abraham fails in his calling, yet God still uses him to be a blessing. Abraham also fails as a husband. He sins against his wife, Sarah. This is the second time his wife has been abducted because of his scheme. Not only is she abducted, but because of the plot that he has asked her to to be a part of, he leads her in sin. The Lord has to intervene to keep Abimelech from committing adultery with Sarah. God has to intervene, especially so that no one will question the father of Isaac. The the integrity of, of who Isaac's father is is at stake here. In spite of Abraham, the Lord preserves his marriage. In spite of Abraham, the Lord preserves the promised seed. And what is behind this? Why did God have to do this? Because Abraham put his own safety ahead of Sarah's safety. He is concerned to protect his life at the expense of his wife's. And he's done this more than once. Abraham has failed his wife. He is not an example for husbands. And there's an application for husbands and the future husbands in this room. Don't do this. That's it. That's the application. His bad example does point us to hope. How? Well, Abraham here is a husband exactly in the opposite way that Christ is a husband to his church. The church is Christ's bride. Abraham, for his own safety and because of his lack of trust in God, puts his wife in great danger. Jesus will suffer trusting his father's plan to rescue and save his bride from danger. Eternal danger. Abraham fails Sarah here. Jesus will not fail us, though we may fail him. Abraham is not faithful to Sarah here, but Jesus is faithful to us when we are unfaithful to him. Abraham nearly forsakes his bride. Jesus was forsaken for his bride, and he will never leave nor forsake his bride. And so, as the scripture says, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. God still cares for us when we fail. So how should we respond? Well, in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 21, we see Abraham and Sarah's response. On the heels of Abraham failing this test, Isaac is born. Now, the birth of Isaac is told in an understated way. It's an anticlimactic 
culmination after decades of waiting for a son. We would expect a speech from Abraham or at least some grand hymn of praise. Instead, this long-awaited event is told with succinct brevity. The reason being is that this isn't the end of the testing of Abraham's faith. A greater test is coming, and it will involve Isaac. The birth announcement is setting the stage for the climax of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac's saga. And we'll see that next week in Genesis chapter 22. Yet, in these seven verses and beginning of chapter 21, we have instruction and we have encouragement as we see Abraham's response to God's word. First of all, notice in the first two verses of chapter 21, what does the author want us to pay attention to? What's well, the, the Lord's word of promise that's been fulfilled? And so three times, God's word is referenced in verses 1 and 2. As he said, as he had promised, God had spoken to him. In spite of Abraham's stumbling, God fulfills his word. As John Calvin has said, God never feeds men empty promises. Does God need our help in keeping his promises? No. In Abraham, we see how we are to respond to God's word. The right response to God's word is believing obedience. In Genesis 17, God told Abraham that he would have a son through Sarah, and he commanded him to name his son Isaac. And he commanded him to circumcise his son as a sign of the covenant. And so the writer here is careful to show us Abraham's obedience in response to God's word. In verse 3 of 21, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. Then, when Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcises his infant son as God had commanded him. Verse 4. Experiencing the faithfulness of God, Abraham responds with believing obedience. The Lord's gracious display of kindness to Abraham and Sarah is the foundation of Abraham walking in God's commands. And so it is for his people today. The grace of his gospel, his kindness towards us. The only proper response is believing obedience. But the attention shifts back to Sarah, and she takes center stage at the close of this, the announcement of Isaac's birth. In Sarah, we see a response of joy. In Sarah, we see how the Lord is able to work all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Remember, in chapter 18, she laughed in unbelief when the Lord told her that in a year she would have a son because she was 90 years old. Now, a year later, she is laughing, overwhelmed with joy because of God's grace to her. The Lord has visited her and turned her pain, her heartache, her sin and shame into her testimony. And in verse 5, Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. 
Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She is celebrating and praising her God. She is getting a glimpse of the Savior who will redeem his people from their sin. And he will heal their pains and heartaches. She is testifying to God's providential care. She can boast that the Lord keeps his promises. She can say with the prophet Isaiah that Jesus, our Messiah, will grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Isaiah 61.3. Sarah could say with David in Psalm 30, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. And Sarah has now tasted her eternal reward. And so she would tell you today that even if you don't receive from God the thing that you're asking for him in this life, that in Christ you have treasure beyond measure. And so she would tell you today with the Apostle Paul, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Sarah would gladly confess with the early church saying, it's trustworthy. If we have died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Amen. And that ends this preaching of God's word.